really is a blessing to be in Corpus again with you all. Um, it's always a, a real blessing to see new faces every time I come. Really encouraging. When I see all the children running around before, um, I just that's what they do in our church. <laughs> children the same, same everywhere. Okay, if you open your Bibles with me to Romans 12 and verse 14. Romans 12, verse 14. This chapter is a section of Romans that deals with Christian living. That is how we are expected to live in light of all the mercies that God has shown us in giving us salvation. Tonight I want to look at something that concerns how we relate to unbelievers, the unconverted around us. So let's stand as we read God's word. I'll read Romans 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Let's pray again. Our Father, we ask that you would show us wondrous things out of your word. That you would be our teacher. Help us to apply these things to our lives. That they would be reality, real to us and lived by us for your kingdom coming. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so in Romans 12 here, the apostle gives us instruction on how we are to live as uh, Christians after giving us some guiding principles in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 to 8, Paul deals with how we are to conduct ourselves in church meetings. And then from verses 9 to 13, we are told how we are to relate to one another as believers in every day, in normal life. But now from verse 14 here, Paul begins to instruct us on how we are to relate to unbelievers, the un converted around us that is those outside the church bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them and if you read on there in this chapter uh, you'll see that this theme of how we are to relate to unbelievers carries on till the end of the chapter and and just as a little side point here which i think is very useful You may wonder as you read on in verse 15, you may think, well, I can see how the rest of the chapter relates to how we are to relate to unbelievers. But what about verse 15 here? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. One might ask, is that not talking about our relationship with believers still? Now, of course, the principle applies, doesn't it? 
to believers, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But there's a good point here in that, do you see how off base the thinking of some Christians can become when they struggle to apply that text to unbelievers? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You see, when an unbeliever is rejoicing over some temporary blessing, so often a believer will look upon and think, well, that's worldly. (laughs) And it's even worse when some believers become so detached and despising, they can't even weep with unbelievers when they weep. And so they become cold, callous, and unchristlike there, and it really builds up an unnecessary wall between them and and the gospel but I think there's a good thing there but but anyway in our text here before that uh, tonight which is bless those who persecute you, you bless and do not curse them and so the first thing then this passage speaks of in our relationship to unbelievers is the Christian being persecuted. Notice when Paul begins to instruct us how we are to live with unbelievers, the first thing he talks about is the Christian being persecuted. That is, unbelievers treating us badly because of our faith in Jesus. And so, the first thing I want to emphasize about this, brethren, is persecution for the Christian is... A reality. You know, I gave a, a sermon at the Denton the Fellowship Conference last year with much application there about not unnecessarily offending unbelievers. Uh, there are many professing Christians, even professing and real ones, who in the misplaced zeal they build up unnecessarily walls with between themselves and unbelievers. But We say here, brethren, don't we, that if you are a Christian, then regardless of how kind you are towards others, there are some people who are going to be offended. There are some people who are going to hate you even because you are a Christian. Let it be for the right reasons. Let it not be because you're being a Pharisee like I taught last year. But but even if you do everything right and you don't build up unnecessary walls, you are kind and considerate, then there are some people who will still hate you and will go out of their way to make life difficult for you simply because you are a Christian, because you're the real deal. Uh, Persecution, we see here, is a reality. And so we can learn here, can't we, brethren? You know, the gospel is not that God will change the world and make it perfect. At least he won't change it in this age. He will change it in eternity, of course. You know, there is much error in the so-called social gospel that says Jesus came into the world to make it a better place. Now, all that said, of course, there are many Christians who have done great things to make the world a better place. I'm not denying that either now. Uh, This world is a better place than it otherwise would have been because of the actions of a lot of godly men and women down the ages. Uh, I'm not trying to talk that down here. That's a great testimony. The more of that, the merrier. 
You know, our Lord said, didn't he? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But what I am making note of here in this text is that the gospel is not that God will make the world we live in now a better place in this life now. But rather the world around us will remain the same just as wicked as it ever was because it's a fallen world. The gospel is not God will change the world so everyone will smile at you and be happy for you because you're a Christian. But rather the world will remain the same and God will save us out of it. Now, let me just say this, though, before we get to the nitty-gritty of our text. You know, persecution is a reality, but don't get a persecution complex either. You know, like someone who has a chip on their shoulder. You know, like, for example, if someone is of a, a particular race, and these can be many different races, but there are going to be some people who will mistreat you just because of that. It's not nice, is it? It's not right, but it's a fact of life nonetheless. But my point is, that doesn't mean everyone is going to mistreat you because of that. In fact, most people won't mistreat you. But you see, what happens though, doesn't it? If someone goes round with a chip on their shoulder, with some kind of persecution complex, then they end up accusing people who are not. You know, someone is doesn't acknowledge them the day uh, in the day or whatever the person's not even thinking about anything and they're uh, well that's because they're they're attacking me well you see in the same way you see and this is the point I'm getting at there are some professing Christians who get a, a persecution complex and they go around with a chip on their shoulder and so they misread everything as persecution when it's not so don't get that either but Another thing, though, really worth noting before we get into this text is that persecution is not always in the form of violence. You know, that is another thing we can get the wrong idea about. You know, we, we tend to think of, uh, we tend to read of other Christians, don't we, being tortured for their faith in some other part of the world, and we tend to think, well, you know, compared to what I. Compared, when I compare what I'm going through with what they're going through, it, my suffering is nothing. Now, you know, there is something about getting a perspective on things, isn't there? You know, we can sometimes, I don't, well, I speak for me, but we can get carried away sometimes. And we can be like a, a little child, you know, our, our William. Um, one year old, he has a, we call it a dodie, you call it a pacifier, they put it in the mouth, yes, always sounds too technical of a word for me, but too clinical, but, but, but he has one in his mouth and one in his hand, he's kind of a dodie or a pacifier-aholic, but, but if he, lo- he has one in his mouth and if he loses the other one, he, he's crying for the, se- for the second one. You know, well, we can sometimes resemble that, can't we, in exaggerating our trials sometimes. But we can get, though we can get all out of perspective, and it's good to get a perspective on it, you know, what I'm saying is don't try and water it down either. 
You know, suffering is still suffering. And persecution with words can be a lot harder than violence sometimes. You know, I've, I remember hearing this from a, a headmaster of a school. He, he was talking about, uh, he said, you know, little boys, he says, when they get into a huge disagreement, uh, a big disagreement to a huge extent, they'll have a little fight. And then it's quickly all over and they carry on, everything's well. But he says, but girls, little girls can just be nasty and it goes on for, uh, for, for months sometimes. You see, verbal persecution can be a lot worse than vis- uh, physical. Just ask any wife who has been verbally abused by a husband, but uh, although he's never laid a hand on her. Uh, you know, but she's had to constantly live in fear and uh, misery. Uh, you see, persecution, it can come in the form of uh, losing a job or just having your life made difficult at work simply because you're a Christian. Uh, persecution can come in the form of family members or friends or other people you know turning nasty against you and going out of their way to make your life difficult or unpleasant simply because you're a Christian. Well, in whatever form it comes, this is what we're being told to do in this verse, in these circumstances. And this is to be our reaction to it. As it says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, this word bless here is literally well word. If you want to break the word up. To speak well of them, in other words. Now, speaking well of them, in blessing them, this doesn't mean that if someone is being evil towards you and they are constantly being wicked towards you, speaking well of them doesn't mean uh, you are to go around to others saying how brilliant and wonderful and nice people they are. <laughs> because that would be a lie, wouldn't it? That would be putting on a mask which is condemned, if you notice, on just a few verses earlier. Uh, the, uh, hypocrisy, loving without hypocrisy. You see, that's not what it's talking about at all when it talks about speak well here. You see, blessing and do not curse here has to do with praying for them. In blessing, speaking good of them, the idea is do good in, in the highest way you know for them. That is, pray to God for them to save their souls. You see, it's like here when it says... Do not curse them. When it says do not curse them, cursing is nothing to do with bad language, is it? You know, because when an unbeliever persecutes a Christian for their faith in Jesus, the Christian is not tempted to respond with, you know, a tirade of foul mouth abuse at them, are we? But there is a temptation, isn't there, to wish them cursed of God? You see, when someone is treating, mistreating you for your faith in Jesus, whether it be your boss at work or someone else you know, the instinctive thing in our unredeemed flesh that we still have to live in, is the instinctive thing is to pray for God to curse them. And there is a temptation, isn't there? To be like the disciples who said, shall we not, like, be, not be like Elijah and call down fire from heaven upon them? That's the temptation. As Jesus said, when they said that, you don't know of what spirit you're of. 
I want you to note here that it's not enough, is it, for a Christian to simply be neutral. When we come up against persecution, the teaching is not just bear it. The teaching is not put up with it, uh, with mistreatment, without retaliating. But rather praying that God might save them. Uh, the, the teaching is not that we retaliate by praying that God, that we just hold off and don't pray that God would would curse them. <coughs> we are to actively call upon God to do the highest good possible, that is to save their souls. And, and this teaching is just all over the New Testament. Now let me read you some verses. Matthew 5, verse 44. Our Lord said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, 44, he said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies... Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This just comes up time and time again. You see, this is always linked to praying for their salvation. But all that said, that's what we're told, but it's something that's easier said than done. So the question is, how do we get this to be a reality in our lives? And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he gave some really good advice on this. But the first thing, though, is don't base this upon a feeling. Don't just try and feel good about them, but base it upon a reasoning. The context of this passage, as I said, is Christian living. And we're told earlier... That we are to have our, we are to be transformed by renewing our minds in what the Word of God says. So, in how we are to view unbelievers, we've got to let God's Word be our be our guide. You see, one of the principles that should guide us in our relationship to unbelievers is they are never going to be as moral as we'd like them to be. Why? Well, because they're unconverted. They do what sinners do. It's amazing, isn't it, how often the Christians surprised by unbelievers sinning. We're surprised by sinners sinning. You see, if you fail to realize this, if you have a, a false expectation of them, then there's always going to be a temptation to be impatient with them. You see, what we must do is we are to reason with ourselves. Why are they treating me like this? And we find the answer is because they're unregenerate. You remember when the Apostle Paul said elsewhere, I know no man after the flesh. That is how Paul knew people before he was converted. He knew them after the flesh. What he meant by that was the way he he viewed everyone was after the flesh, after the physical, meaning... You know, he saw himself as a Jew, and so he was superior. And he loathed the Gentiles. That's how he viewed people. Now, of course, knowing people after the flesh, that looks different in different contexts around the world, in different cultures. 
You see, when, when people know people after the flesh, they know people because they're of a particular race. Well, when you become a Christian, God changes you. And you both see yourself now and you see others in a different light. But when you stop doing that, it's proof you are a Christian. You see, as a Christian, you know the unconverted in a different way now, don't you? And so when persecuted, you must ask yourself, why is he or she doing this? Because they're unregenerate. Because they're blind. They can't help it. And so what happens? You pity them, don't you? You realize the victims of the devil on their way to hell. And so when you realize this, what happens? You're going to start desiring their salvation. And if you desire their salvation, what does that lead you to do? It leads you to pray for them to be saved. It leads you to pray that God would have mercy upon them as he did me. Remember our Lord Jesus' words on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Remember Stephen praying at his martyrdom there. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Both praying for their salvation there, for the people who were persecuting. But a second way that this becomes a reality is remind yourself of God's reaction to you. You see, you're a Christian now. But remember who you once were. That we were enemies of God. Sinners, ungodly, lawbreakers. There was nothing in us whatsoever to recommend us to God. You know, you might see this unconverted person who has nothing the way they're treating you to recommend you treat them well. Well, what did, how much worse was we before God? What's the reason we're Christians now? It's because God didn't curse us, isn't it? It's because God didn't give us what we deserved, but he chose to love us. Remember how God treated the prodigal. You know, it always amazes me. There's often debate about who was the prodigal son. Was he an unbeliever? Was he a, a believer or something in between or whatever? But listen, ultimately, if you are converted, then he was you. You know, that is how you and I were before conversion. And that is how God responded to us. After we'd gone, gone lived our life without him in defiance there, and as we went back, that is how God ran to us and greeted us. You know, remember, I mean, in thinking of how God treated us when we was undeserving. Remember when Jesus told the parable in Matthew 18 there. Of the unforgiving servant. When Peter, of course, he came to our Lord. And, it, and he asked him, Lord... How often will we forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times. And, and Peter thought he was 
being really charitable and boasting there because the Pharisees, they had a saying, the religious people of his day, that you forgive people three times and no more. So he thought seven times. You have really got this gospel down. And Jesus said, no, I I do not say seven times, but 77 times. And of course, he's not thinking of a literal number there, but go on forgiving. You know, obviously because, you know, if you're thinking, if you're thinking, well, it's that 74 times they've done that to me, three more times, then there'll be no more forgiveness. (laughs) Well, if you're thinking like that, then there's no forgiveness the first time, is there? But the idea is we, we keep on, it's an attitude of being willing to forgive. There must be repentance as this, passage teaches but just like the father runs to the prodigal that's if we're going to be Christ like like God that's how we should be when there is a, a wanting to forgive And he's, but our Lord he told that parable didn't he which illustrated how much we've been forgiven by God he said the kingdom of God he, he compared it to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle one brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents and he could not pay his master but he's, he begged him that guy he fell on his knees and, and out of pity of him the master forgave him the debt now that debt there I'm told it's worth more than all the money in, uh, in the world a massive debt. You see, that's like that's comparative of our debt before God, isn't it? The debt we've been forgiven of is just more than anything in the universe. You can't put a you can't put a price on it even, can you, our sin against God? I mean how much is a sin against an infinite being? hell is forever because we've sinned against infinite love but God has forgiven us we've not deserved any of it and he's forgiven of us of that debt well the second servant comes to this man who's been forgiven of this colossal debt but this second servant who comes to the first servant who'd had his debt, debt wiped away this time the debt's smaller, but it's still quite a big debt. I'm told it's three months' wages. If someone did you out of three months' wages, would you be pleased with that? I don't think you'd be too happy about it. But when he came to him and repented, he, he grabbed him by the throat. And wouldn't forgive him when he'd been forgiven of a much bigger debt. When the master heard about it, he delivered him to the... To the jailers, the one with the original debt that he must pay. So also may Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now he's talking about forgiving believers there. But you still get the principle in that text of just how much we've been forgiven. A debt beyond what we can what we can pay. And so you see. 
when we're persecuted, when we're mistreated, that's one thing we must remind ourselves is how much we have been forgiven. We didn't deserve at all any of that. And so this is, again, it's not to be false with these people and tell everyone else how nice they are when they're not being nice or anything like that. But the context here is praying. Keep praying for them in the highest good you know, possible. So many times it's these people who get saved. I remember Charles Leiter, they gave me a book. I think it was called Graham uh, McKendrick up in uh, Scotland there. And they go for, around the fishing villages... And every time that they'd find the worst possible sinner they could find, and they target that one and just pray for him, and every time they got saved. You know, it's so often the case, isn't it? Yeah, you have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Even the lost look after those who are nice to them and so forth. Therefore you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The idea by perfect there is is mature. But the way we are to be like our Father in heaven there is to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. To bless them, as it says in our text, and not curse with the highest blessing possible. Speak well of them before God. Call on God to save them. That's the best way we can love our enemies there. And just lastly, in closing, this is the best form, or one of the best forms at least, of evangelism. You know, how living this life, I mean, this is what 1 Peter is all about. 1 Peter is a book about, I know there, sometimes people say you can't live the gospel and it's become a cliche, but 1 Peter is all about living the gospel. You know, wives uh, with unbelieving husbands living it out before them. So they ask them for a reason for the hope that is within them. You know, slaves who are being mistreated. Not giving the master reason to mistreat them, but acting godly and then when they when they see they still have a hope and despite of all this they ask for a reason for the hope that is within them and of course the reason for the hope that is in the believer is not it's not talking about apologetic ministries or anything like that he's talking about my hope is that Christ has died for me and we can tell them what Christ has done to forgive them their, their sins You see, not cursing around these people and and desiring. Because when you're desiring, you're also going to... When you're praying for people and you... I mean, it, it also changes the way you act around them, doesn't it? Also, you know, you, you don't respond in a bad way, though. And so this is one of the things that can cause people to ask you for a reason for the hope that's within you. And you can tell them 
that my hope of eternal life is Jesus Christ. Now, why are you treating me this way? Well, because our Lord treated me this way. So, that's what I have, so let's pray. Oh, Father, we just thank you so much that you did not curse us, but you loved us with an everlasting love. A love that is beyond all understanding. And I pray, Lord, for more of this love in us. I pray, Lord, for... You would just help us. Uh, uh, any brothers and sisters here who are going through any persecution, that you would help them in burying, but also in praying. We pray, Lord, that we'd see this reality in this text. I think of the Apostle Paul who wrote those words. How he was one who was persecuting the church and was saved himself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.